Hey, we're living in strange times, aren't we? We're living in bizarre, bizarre times. I was so excited to join the gym recently. Uh, went down there. You know, I, I had surgery. Some of you saw me wandering around with my arm in a sling like this because I had surgery. I had total shoulder replacement, like a knee replacement. Take the joint out, stick a new one in. New joint in the shoulder. And so watch this. Wait for it. Watch. Watch. Look at that. I haven't been able to do that for five years. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I'm like, hey, maybe I should go to the gym. I can't really do anything with my shoulder, but maybe I could use the treadmill or do something. So I went down and I joined the gym. And then I got down there and I looked around suspiciously. And I thought, all of these sweating people have the virus. <laughs> and they're... <laughs> They're sweating on the equipment. I don't know. I feel really conflicted about this. So now i got to figure that one out, okay? We're living in strange times. Came back just about a month ago from Myanmar. Wore the mask for 30 hours on the plane in airport, Seoul, Korea. I know they say now that the mask, you know, is, you're not supposed to wear it. You know, you're a mask hoarder, all this stuff. But I didn't know it at the time. So I was wearing the mask happily, came, came back, and I was so happy because I'm like, hey, I'm out of the danger zone, only to find out a week ago, right, that at an elementary school just blocks from my house, the virus has followed. And here it is. Live in strange times. And so now I'm washing my hands dozens of times a day for 20 full seconds, just the way I did in Myanmar. Because in Myanmar... I was kind of freaked out. So I was washing, washing, washing. And here's what happened. I'm going to give you a tip. Now, you might not hear anything else today in this sermon. But I want to tell you, this is a tip that has a spiritual value to it. I was washing my hands in Myanmar, 20 seconds. And I had heard that you have to sing the happy birthday song twice while you wash your hands. So I'm singing the happy birthday song. And I got to a moment in my life where I said, if I have to sing that song one more time, I'm going to blow my brains out. I cannot sing that song again. What should a Christian do? What would a Christian do in a moment like that? And it suddenly struck me. I'm so stupid. I should be reciting scripture instead. So for the happy birthday song, I substituted Psalm 23. It's so amazing. So think about this. So beautiful. You know Psalm 23. You need to memorize it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. <laughs> he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The virus. <laughs> thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, the virus. <laughs> my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you know what was weird? All of a sudden, I'm like, that was 45 seconds, and I didn't want to stop. You know what I mean? It's so beautiful. So here's what, you know, I mean, if you don't want to do the full 45 seconds, you could just memorize half of Psalm 23. Oh, you could do Psalm 1, six verses, about 25 seconds. 
You could do the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 13. It'll get you into about 30 seconds, right? You don't have to do the whole list. But I'm telling you, this is super weird, and I'm actually being really serious about this. It actually completely changed my perspective because all of a sudden, every time I picked up a bar of soap and I started washing my hands, I went, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and I'm meditating. Now I'm meditating and I'm getting all this stuff out of the word. Isn't that the way it should be for Christians? Okay, memorize some scripture and put it to use. 20 seconds every time you wash your hands. And that brings me to the key question of my sermon today. And actually, Adam already hinted at it. And the question is, how should we think and respond as followers of Christ right now in this moment? That's a discipleship question. That's a question that Christians should always be asking. It's not just when there's a virus or something, because you know what? There's, there's a virus today, there's a crisis tomorrow, there's a war on the third day. I mean, there's always something happening, right? And here's a discipleship question for followers of Christ. How should I think and respond as a follower of Christ right now in this situation, in this broken world? There's lots of practical questions that we all have to ask ourselves right now. And they're all valid. Should I go to public places? Should I send my kids to school? Should I stockpile some extra things? I guess toilet paper is, is one of the big things that people want to stockpile right now. Should I go to the gym? You know, we have to ask practical questions. But the Christian, the follower of Christ, doesn't stop with those questions. There's another question, and we have to push into this area. And the next question is, how can I, as a Christian, dive deeper into my faith? How can I trust the Lord more in my life right now? How should I think? What should I do? Some of us have newsfeed anxiety, you know, because it's like, it's like clickbait, you know, you go on your newsfeed and it's like all these headlines and it's about the virus and about everything that's happening. And so we have newsfeed anxiety. And the other day I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. And I told my wife, I said, you know what, let's do this. Let's don't look at the news. Let's not do any of that. Here's what we're going to do. Let's just think right now of as many verses as we can about trusting in the Lord. And let's share. And both of us came up. First verse we came up with was Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. And we went, oh, we had the same verse. And we had a really cool discussion about that. That's just a tiny, tiny, tiny little move in the direction of discipleship for us in the times that we live and that's going to bring me to our passage for today. So Luke 16, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will give you a Bible, and you can open up to the Gospel of Luke. And in chapter 16, it is the parable of the dishonest manager. It's not on everyone's favorite list. I have to warn you ahead of time. The parable of the dishonest manager. It has been called by Bible scholars, the most difficult parable in the Bible. Others have called it incomprehensible. 
Isn't that amazing? That's our assigned text for today. And it's amazing because last week in chapter 15, we encountered the most beautiful parable in the entire Bible, the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son. All of chapter 15, parables of joy, of grace, of salvation. Amazing. Chapter 16, parables of challenge, parables of discipleship. In chapter 15, you get the prodigal son returning to the father and the father rushing out and putting the robe on him. It's just, that's so cool. I think of it as a warm cookie kind of a parable. Beautiful. In chapter 16, you get the parable of the dishonest manager. I think of it as a stick to the ribs, kind of, a, just a jab in the ribs kind of a parable. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know why I always seem to get the jab in the rib parables, but... Be that as it may, this is where we're at in chapter 16. But there's something that I've told you almost every time that I've preached from uh, Luke. I've said the same thing to open my sermon. And what I've said is there are two things that always go together in the Gospel of Luke. They always go side by side. And one is salvation. The theme of God's grace and the joy of salvation. And the second is the theme of challenge to be a true follower of Christ. Those two things, and I I think I've said it every sermon on Luke, and I just see it over and over and over again in the scriptures, and those two things must always be connected. So here we go. We're going to read a parable of challenge, Luke 16, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Here it is. Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer manage it. Dude, you're going to lose your job. It's over. There's an audit. Okay, we found you out. You're embezzling. Not going to happen anymore. This guy's in big time trouble. Verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now those last two verses, they're kind of tricky. They're kind of tricky. There's a lot going on there. We're going to come back to those verses 
Those verses are really a key to our interpretation. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, there it is. Did you feel that jab? You cannot serve God and money. It's a discipleship parable. So here's my aim. Here's what I want to do this morning in this message. I want to do two things. The first is I want to try to unpack the meaning of this parable as best we can. And then secondly, I want to apply the lesson to our own situation right here and right now, even as we wrestle with this present moment and as we wrestle with this reality of the virus and what's going on. Now, that seems like an ambitious thing, doesn't it? Take the hardest parable in the Bible and then talk about the virus. As I was contemplating this, I heard a voice in the back of my head saying, don't do it. (laughs) But nevertheless, I have forged on in the hope. Now, maybe someday I'll get to heaven and Jesus will look at me and say, you know, you did some pretty good sermons, but that one on Luke 16, man, what were you thinking? I don't know. But here we go. We're going to do our best. The key to the parable is the contrast in verse 8. The contrast in verse 8 is going to unlock the meaning of the parable for us. So take a look at it in verse 8. And really, it's at the end of the parable. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, this is the key to unlock the meaning of the parable. It is the contrast between the sons of this world, also you could translate of this age, it's like this current world system, the sons of this world, and the sons of light. So once we understand that, it sort of gives us some bearings to understand what's going on. The dishonest manager represents the sons of this world. It's pretty clear. The dishonest manager, you got two categories. Like, okay, so there's two types of people, sons of this world, sons of light. The dishonest manager, son of this world, right? We need to understand the teaching technique of Jesus. Jesus is teaching a spiritual lesson on true discipleship by creating a comparison contrast between a flawed character in the parable and the life of a true disciple. Can you see that? There's a comparison and contrast. Sons of the world, sons of light. Here's this character in the parable, and you go, that guy... That guy's a jerk. That guy is dishonest. How how could you use him as an example of anything? But now we have to understand the teaching technique of Jesus. He's using the flawed character in the parable 
to set up a comparison and contrast so that we might get the true spiritual lesson that we need to hear. Now, this is a teaching style that Jesus used more than once. I'm thinking of another parable. It's going to come later in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll study it in a few weeks. And it's the parable of the unjust judge. And here's the parable. Jesus said there's this woman, she's a widow, and she comes to the judge. And this judge is an unjust judge. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about man. He doesn't care about this woman. He doesn't care about anything but himself. And this woman comes, and she's pleading her case. Please listen to me. Please give me justice. Please. And the guy's not paying any attention. He won't listen to her. won't give her the time of day. And she keeps coming, pleading over and over again. Finally, this unjust judge, he says, look at I don't care about this woman. I don't care about God or man. I don't care about anything, but this lady's going to drive me nuts. And so he gives her the answer to her request. And Jesus says, and won't God listen to the requests of his children who pray to him night and day? And when you listen to the parable, you say, wait a minute. Did you just compare God to the unjust judge? Is that the teaching method of Jesus? Jesus uses a flawed character in the parable to set up a comparison and contrast and to say, you know, in some ways, God is like the judge because the judge is receiving requests and and everything, but he's not answering them. Well, God receives requests, but he's not like the unjust judge because he's going to answer his children. Comparison and contrast. It's the key to understanding the passage. And so we ask ourselves if this dishonest manager is the representative of the children of this world, what is it that we see in his life? In the parable, the master commends the dishonest manager for only one reason. There's only one reason that he is commended. And this is it. At a critical moment in his life, the dishonest manager demonstrated quick thinking to use his available resources to gain short-term security. I know that's a long sentence. I'm sorry. It's hard. It's a hard parable. So can I say it again? Just listen carefully. Here's why he was commended. At a critical moment in his life, was it a critical moment? Yeah. He got found out. There was an internal audit. Somebody realized this guy is ripping the boss off. He's going to lose his job. At a critical moment in his life, the dishonest manager demonstrated quick thinking. He said, oh, this is intense. This, this situation is intense. I got to do something. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond to the situation that's unfolding in front of me? What, how am I going to respond to this? He says, oh, I got it. Quick thinking. That's what it means. That's what the shrewd means. He was a quick thinker. He came up with a plan like that. And he demonstrated his quick thinking by using his available resources to gain short-term security. Now, what are his available resources? 
Well, he still works for the boss. So evidently, he still has some authority. And he, this guy's quick because he knows he's going to get fired. And he just goes right to all these people that owed money. And he's kind of the, you know, the steward. He's the go-between between the master and, and these people that owe money. And so he just walks in. They don't know, have any idea what's going on. He walks in and he says, hey, how much do you owe? 100? Oh, pfft. cut it down to 50. You know what? For you, 50. Next guy, how much do you owe? 100? Oh, for you, 80. What's he doing? He's using the resources that he has, which is his clout still with these clients of this patron, and he uses his influence in order to cut a deal with them because in so doing, they're going to become obligated back to him. The key to, the, to understanding this is to understand the way society worked in the ancient world. People gave gifts and did favors completely, almost completely, in order to obligate a response from their friends. That's the way society worked. And he did this in order to gain short-term security. What's the short-term security? It says so that when he lost his job, they would welcome him into their homes. In other words, they would be obligated to take care of him. You know, that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Now, in the ancient world, everybody would get this. We have a harder time understanding this parable. But it's our distance from that culture. The ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, was a world in which 99% of the people lived at poverty level. It's just poverty, poverty, poverty. And there's no safety net. There's no security system for anyone. So what they did was they constructed their own security systems through a network of friendships, but friendships were different than our friendships. The friendships weren't just, hey, I like you, you know, let's play racquetball together. We have a common interest. The friendships were all around this reciprocity of gift-giving, doing favors, now you owe me. And, and the system worked. And it was just embedded in the way that they thought. So everyone listening to this is like, smart move. Smart move, man. He bought a bunch of friends, is what he did. So that the friends could be his short-term security. Now that is why he was commended by the master. There's no question about it. But the key is in the contrast. So who are the sons of light and how are they different? That's the question. Now, the, the dishonest manager who's a son of this world, he's the kind of guy who thinks first about his own wealth, his own position, and his own security in this world. That's, that's the dishonest manager. He's thinking first about himself, his wealth, his position, his security in this world. That's his mindset. He's self-focused and thinking about the short-term outcome. But the sons of light are different. Now, the sons of light are the true disciples of Jesus. You can see the contrast, sons of the world, sons of light. Who are we supposed to be like? Sons of light. Right? There's a contrast here. What do we know about the sons of light when we read this passage? Well, we know several things. We know, for one thing, that they have an eternal mindset. 
Do you see that in the passage? You got to look at it. Look at the text. What does it say in verse 9? Right after the part about the sons of life, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. We'll come back to that. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. See the word eternal? Sons of light have a broader perspective. They're not just thinking about short-term security. They're thinking about eternal outcomes. Eternal outcomes. That's why the word eternity is there. And so there's a contrast between eternal dwellings and earthly houses. Did you see that? The manager's like, I need a house to live in, like tomorrow. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm going to rip people off. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to use all my resources and my brilliant brain to buy friends. And then I'm going to get into earthly houses. What do the sons of light do? The sons of light say, I'm more interested in the eternal outcome than I am with immediate and temporary security. Can you see that contrast? That contrast is there, but wait a minute. <laughs> I know it's hard. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Let's just admit it right here, okay? But let's, let's just look at a couple more words and try to parse it out. Let's try to sort this out. In verse 9, it says, and I tell you to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. I just, that phrase does not sit well with me. This is Jesus. I tell you, make friends through unrighteous wealth. You're like, what are you even talking about, Jesus? Well, let's just break it down. Let's go back. Let's think about friends for a minute. Now, in order to understand the thinking of Jesus, the best way to do that is probably to compare with the rest of the Gospel of Luke. I mean, if I could find other passages in Luke that's going to illuminate for me what kinds of friends is he talking about, Maybe that'll shed light on what he's telling the sons of light to do. So we do have a passage like that. It's just back a couple pages in chapter 14. Take a look at chapter 14 and verse 12. And we've actually gone back to this parable several times. It's really important. And it's illuminating into the mindset of Jesus and a kingdom mindset, a discipleship mindset. Jesus was invited to a great banquet In verse 12 of chapter 14, it says, uh, Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite who? Your friends. Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Oh, sounds like an eternal perspective. He's using that banquet. He's saying, let me tell you about the mindset of the children of light. Let me tell you about a discipleship mindset. For one thing, there's always an eternal perspective involved. But the other thing he says is he says, don't invite your friends. Well, friendship in the ancient world was different than than we think of friendship. Friendship was almost always a bought friendship. You bought friends. You gave gifts. 
You did stuff to obligate people and you were obligated. You go, yeah, that's my friend because he really bailed me out in need and now I'm his friend and I kind of need to do what I, whatever I can do. That's the way that friendship worked. So at this banquet, who got invited? All the rich people. All of the f- bought friends or he was trying to buy. Hey, I'll give you a great banquet. Come over and dine knowing this. Okay, now you're my friend. So he was buying friends. Who could reciprocate? Jesus said, when you have a banquet, don't do that. Do you know how countercultural it was for Jesus to say that? <laughs> Completely countercultural. Like, what? What are you even talking about? Don't do that. Yeah, Jesus said instead, go out blind, lame, poor, people who cannot repay you. Jesus said, I have a new friend group for you. I got a new friend group for you. It's people in need who cannot repay you. Those are going to be your new friends. Those are kingdom friends. Those are discipleship friends. And Jesus is really rattling their world. Now, if I take that picture and I lay it over the top of this verse, things get interesting. In chapter 16, where he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves. And I have to know the friends Jesus is talking about is the poor, the lame, the blind, people in need. Make friends. How? Now it gets just even weirder. With, he says, with, by the means of unrighteous wealth. <laughs> I just feel really uncomfortable with that phrase. Make friends, these kind of kingdom friends, but by the means of unrighteous wealth. Why would he say that? Some translations translate it worldly wealth, which in a way kind of softens it a little bit, I think, but by the means of worldly wealth. What is he talking about when he talks about worldly wealth? The word wealth or money is an Aramaic word, mammon. You've heard that word mammon? It's, it's kind of a Bible word, but that's literally what it says. By worldly mammon. Now, here's a really interesting tidbit, and, and I just, I'm geeked out by stuff like this, but that word mammon is related to a Semitic root, aman, which means to trust, to trust. You get it? Aman, mammon. Can you hear, you hear the similarity, right? And so many scholars believe that the word mammon actually comes from the word trust, And what it implies is, it implies that we live in a world where people put their trust in their wealth. They put their trust in money. They find their security in money. So that wealth and money is not intrinsically evil, according to the Bible, but it goes in that direction really fast because it becomes one of the greatest idols in our world. And why would it become an idol? Because it gives us security. Now, that's the world we live in. Jesus is saying, you know, as a Christian, you got to live in this world. This world is a world in which wealth is all too often an idol. And when it's used for evil or it's used to manipulate or it's used to buy friends and all these things, and Jesus says, you know what? So that's the world that we live in. Now, Jesus says, in that world, I want you to use mammon differently, to use wealth differently. 
Use it as a disciple of Christ. Use it for the kingdom of Christ. Use it for eternal impact. And I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about. Why? The end of verse 9. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So that when it fails, what is it? What is it that's going to fail? Worldly wealth. When it fails. When the mammon fails. You know what? It will fail. It will always fail. There is no lasting security in our stuff or in our stocks or in our bank account or in our insurance policies. There's no lasting security in that. And Jesus says it will fail. But the disciple of Jesus has an eternal perspective and a mission that goes beyond buying friends and buying security. And that disciple is out in the world using the available resources in order for, to promote Christ's kingdom and to reach hurting people. That's the message. Now, that message we're going to find in the Gospel of Luke over and over again. Now, that's what the child of light does. So that kind of brings us more up to the moment. And I want to think about what does it mean to walk as a child, a son or a daughter of light, as a disciple of Jesus? So I'm going to go to one other passage that talks about being a child of light in the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, and in verse 8 of chapter 5, 5 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Hey, there's that phrase. It's a discipleship verse. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What do children of light do? They look at their world and they look at their circumstances and they look at the moment that they're in and they go, what would please God right now? Skip down just a couple of verses. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Make the best use of your time. Now that is not a verse about time management. It's not about efficiency. It's not about your day planner. It's not about planning at all. There are two Greek words that talk about time. One is chronos, and so chronological chronos, that's like day planner stuff. Get your day planner out, and you know, there's another kairos, and kairos means the opportune moment. Make the most of the opportune moment that's in front of you. Make the most, recognize what your moment is, and say, what would please God right now? How can I best serve him? How can I have an eternal impact? How can I use my resources for the cause of Christ right here and right now? That's Christian thinking. That's disciple thinking. That's son or daughter of light thinking. And that's what we're called to. And that's, it brings us to the moment that we live in right now. Think about our moment. It's a weird moment, isn't it? You know, yesterday I just went on to a news feed and I thought, I'm just going to write down titles. Just titles. This is just yesterday. Here's some of the titles. Two more succumb to virus in the U.S. New York declares state of emergency. 
Italian vi virus cases leap. Wall Street investors look for buys as virus fears crush travel stocks. You got to love <laughs> Wall Street. There it is. Investors look for buys as virus fears crush travel stocks. Uber says it will compensate drivers diagnosed with the virus. Stocks plunge on concerns of virus impact. U.S. airport screeners, health workers, plagued by fear and anger as virus spreads. That's our moment, folks. We're living this weird moment. There are two things in that list which rise up as headlines. One is personal health and safety. You're like, wow, that virus, man, I don't want to get the virus. What do I have to do to be healthy and safe? And what's the second theme? Money. Money. Didn't it shock you how quickly the headlines went from, oh, there's a virus in the world. Boy, you know, I hope we don't get sick, to the economy. The supply chain is being disrupted. What? People aren't traveling. What? People aren't going to restaurants. What? People, I mean, the stock market is crashing. It just... That's my retirement. What? <laughs> All of a sudden, we went from health and safety to security, stuff, money, wealth. This is the world that we live in. Now, as a Christian, how am I to respond? What am I to do? Brothers and sisters, every one of us, we should be praying every day, Lord, what would please you? right now in this time. How can I be not a child of the world? How can I be a child of the light right now in this situation? What can I do, Lord? I don't know what's going to happen in the you know, next months. My friend, Pastor Darren, up at Imprint Church in the Seattle area, they have two campuses, one church, two campuses, and one of their campuses was meeting on University of Washington Extension Campus and University of Washington closed all their operations, booted them out. They had two days' notice, no church, can't meet. They sent out a message on the internet and saying, you know, we met and we prayed, what should we do about this? And they decided because one church can't meet, neither of them are going to meet because they can't fit in one building. And so they said, we're going to be this in solidarity. And we ask for each of you, please pray. How can we please the Lord? How can we advance the gospel? How can we care for hurting and vulnerable people? And I went, oh, that's children of light thinking. Isn't that beautiful? Years ago, I was a pastor in Medford, Oregon, in the 80s. And it was during the Cold War. Now, you won't know this. Most of you won't know this. But we were told in Medford that we were one of only two places in the United States of America that when the nuclear holocaust happened and the missiles flew, there were only two places in America you could be safe. One of them was in Medford. And here's the reason why. Because they're going to nuke San Francisco for sure. They're going to nuke maybe Portland, <laughs> Seattle for sure, right? No one's going to nuke Medford. I mean, it's like it's already been nuked, you know. <laughs> it's like no one's going to nuke Medford. So, and then the ocean breeze, you know, the radiation, but the ocean breeze, they, they knew the jet stream, and so we will be safe. We'll be one of the only safe places. So do you know, guess who was in 
the Medford area, survivalists. And the survivalists, we were told, had detailed plans for blowing up I-5, north and south. Why? So that you could not come and take our stuff from us. So what did they do? Now, there was a Christian survivalist movement in the 80s in the Medford area, in the Rogue Valley. And the Christian survivalists, they put out newsletters. This was their advice. This is what the Lord wants you to do. Stockpile food. Like, get a, get a basement, build a bunker, stockpile food, stockpile weapons, because the pillaging hordes are going to come to take your food away from you. And Jesus believes in private property, and he deputizes you to shoot people. <laughs> it's all good. It's all cool. And then Bibles, because you'll need to have devotions. <laughs> now, do you think I'm joking? I wish I was joking, people, but I lived through that. Like, I was down there going, I didn't think this is right. I mean, come on, guys. Let's think a little deeper about this. And people were super impassioned. It's weird what fear will do. It's weird how it takes over our thinking. It's weird how it distorts our reading of the Bible as well. Christians, we have many questions that are valid that we should answer. Should I go to public places? Should I send my kids to school? Should, you know, all these things. Should I have some extra food? I mean, these are reasonable things to do, but the Christian, the child of light, cannot stop with that. We must say, am I living like a child of the world or like a child of light? Am I using my available resources for eternal impact? Am I reaching out to hurting needy people in the name of Jesus? That's what this parable is about. It's what discipleship is about in our lives. It's super important. You cannot serve God and mammon. Should we just read the end of it? Let's go back and read the end of this. Because this is so much here. In verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You just, just think about those phrases for a minute. Faithful in a little. What is the little? The little is, is our wealth. It's our stuff. He calls it the un, uh, unrighteous wealth. Just the world, like what you have. Compared to glory, it's, it's like nothing. But are you being faithful as a disciple with what you have to use it for the Lord's glory? If you haven't been faithful with that which belongs to another, well, wait, what, who, who owns it then? That which belongs to another, what is it? It's the wealth. Who does it belong to? It belongs to the Lord. The child of the world says, hey, that's mine. The child of light says, this is a gift from God. It belongs to God. And I want to be faithful to him. You see where this is going? And then finally, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And says mammon, it's not just about serving, it's about trusting. Brothers and sisters, this discipleship parable and sermon is like a little jab saying, let's put our trust in the Lord. Let's use what we have for an eternal purpose 
Let's build relationships with people, not just so we can get something back from, but we can give something to in Jesus' name. And let's shine like a light for Jesus because of it. Let's say a prayer and we'll have the worship team come forward. Thank you, Lord, for your great love that, that gives us grace and joy and salvation and the responsibility of discipleship and following in the way of Christ in a broken world. We ask, Lord, for your help to understand and apply, Lord. Pray for our friends at Imprint Church that you'll bless them and use them, Lord. Answer their prayer. Use them for the gospel. Show them how to care for hurting people in the Seattle area. Use them, Lord. And Lord, do the same for us at River West. Make this church a shining light of faith and hope in Christ, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.